film listeners, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and figure out why we love the medium so much. Today, it is the last episode of 2022. It has been one hell of a year of movie watching, and to round it all out, I am going to be giving you guys the diary entry covering all of the films that I watched in the second half of December from December 15th all the way through December 30th. Got a lot of stuff to talk about. We got Avatar, The Way of Water. We're going to be peeling back the layers of a, of a certain glass onion uh, and some fun rewatches. But before that, uh, if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. All right, well, let's just dive straight into this diary entry because we have quite a bit to talk about, starting off with a good old-fashioned rewatch. On December 15th, it was a very, very cold, snowy day uh, up in, uh, in upstate New York, uh, so I was planning on go. I went to work early, and when I was done, I was like, I'm not doing anything for the rest of the day, and so I wanted to settle in for a rewatch, so I was cruising around on Hulu a little bit. I found myself drifting towards Hulu more for a bit more of the random rewatch category, um, and so I settled on a rewatch of Jonathan Demme's 1993 courtroom drama, Philadelphia. This film, of course, stars Tom Hanks in his Oscar-winning Oscar winning role as a gay man who is uh, infected with AIDS and is fired from his job. He's a very good lawyer, and he is suing the company that he worked for for wrongful determination, and he enlists Denzel Washington, who is also a um, an attorney, but who is a, um, a, a homophobe, and they develop a relationship and go down this path of redemption and um, resistance towards uh, the the big bad you know lawyer corporation. Um, and you know, I think this movie you know got a bit of uh, an interesting reputation over the past few years with our conversation around LGBTQ rights and uh, homophobia has changed. But um, I honestly find this movie to be truly fantastic. It is a, a wonderful film. It, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the, you know, fantastic direction of Jonathan Demme, who, you know, really injects the most amount of empathy and humanity in his films. And he really gets characters to feel like real people in a lot of ways. <laughs> Though he works with very rich texts, like he works with great screenwriters, and you know this film is no exception. There's wonderful um, sections of dialogue and monologues, and obviously it's a courtroom drama, so you want to be sure to bring it with the spoken word. And it it's paced really well. It's a fascinating story, and it's really wonderful to watch the relationship between uh, Denzel and Hanks, you know, grow over the course of the film. And they're both just terrific. I mean, this is probably Hanks' best performance when he won the Oscar for this movie. Not just because the performance itself is really great, but obviously he, you know, shined a light on the AIDS crisis and you know uh, LGBTQ rights issues to modern audiences. Not that he was obviously the first one to do that. There were many um, films um, before that did it, um, but this was obviously a big one in him winning the Oscar and being such a big star and a big, much younger star at the time. Um, was definitely significant. And it, and I would say that, like, you know, a lot of movies like this kind of have the potential to not age well, to be totally of their time and just an in-the-moment kind of recognition of a good piece of work. 
And I really do think that this movie has aged fantastically. It's incredibly effective. Um, all of the emotional drama is in is portrayed in an incredibly effective, affecting way. And, you know, it's it's a very heartbreaking story. I mean, if you haven't seen Philadelphia yet, I just know that it is quite sad. Um, you know, it's it's tough to make a movie about AIDS and, you know, have it have it be a pick me up of a movie. But um there's just really so much to latch on to in this movie. It's it's one of Denzel's best performances because he's really kind of going um against type in a lot of ways. And, you know, Hanks just has so many moments to shine of this person who is incredibly smart, so lovable, and, you know, just affectionate to everyone that he meets. And, you know, when he finds himself in this conflict that he obviously doesn't deserve to be in, in the middle of, you really root for him and you uh, it's so easy to care for him. Um, and he's just so damn good. It's not a movie star performance. It really does show how good of an actor he is, especially in the scene with the opera. Um, it's it's really, really terrific. The only thing, the only negative I will say about this movie that really stood out to me is the the um, the song, The Streets of Philadelphia, which is a Bruce Springsteen song, the song that he won the Oscar for. Um, look, I grew up in a Bruce Springsteen household and, you know, the boss has a special place in my heart. But this song is really not that good. And I was kind of struck by how bad it honestly was especially when the movie ends with a neil young song called philadelphia which i think is much better and fits the tone and the emotion of the movie way better than the bruce song it may be a bit of a hot take i know a lot of people who like that song you know people in my family included but it just stood out to me as just being kind of eh, you know especially when you pair it with this incredibly 90s intro just like very random shots of philadelphia with this kind of like weird handwritten, um, almost in crayon type font that they have over the the opening credits, which seemed to be happening a lot in the '90s. Um, but other than that, I think the movie holds up, you know, incredibly well. It's a, a wonderful emotional journey. Uh, I gave it four and a half stars. I gave it the like. Definitely check this one out if you haven't seen it in a while. Okay, so I know I got to talk about Avatar: The Way of Water. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited for the film. I have many thoughts on it, but before I do, I want to take a brief detour into franchise town because, you know, gearing up for avatar, I was in a mood of, of franchise. Like I was, I was kind of in this mood of, you know, the big blockbuster entertainment, you know, kind of gearing up for what is surely going to be, you know, the greatest technological achievement of the 21st century, right? So I was in the mood for uh, re-watching a series. And I wasn't going for something like Star Wars or uh, Marvel or anything like that. I wanted something that I hadn't vi- revisited in quite a while and something that I felt I could do in a few days. So I went, I did a full rewatch of the Hunger Games films, and it was interesting to do so because I remember seeing all of them in theaters. I remember when they were very big, particularly the first two. You know, Jennifer Lawrence was the biggest star in the world at the time, and this series kind of had every, uh, you know, the audiences kind of in seats before Marvel really hit it big, um, or bigger than they already had. Obviously, you know, this movie came out around the same time as Avengers, so the, the tides were changing. And this movie is in a very, or this movie series rather, is in a very interesting place um, in terms of franchises. You know, it's obviously based off of the popular popular book series by Suzanne Collins about a dystopian future where um, uh, the world is divided into twelve districts. Um, every year, 
They send up two people to fight in these um, survival games called the Hunger Games, and uh, they fight to the death until there is one left standing. And these movies are not very good. They're, I remember enjoying them have, and uh, understanding some of the flaws of them, but I, I had good memories of seeing them. So I will admit there is a bit of nostalgia for these movies, for sure. Um, I have great memories of seeing the first one, especially especially in theaters. You know, I brought like 12 of my friends opening night to see it together. We'd all like just finished the book and we're very excited. Um, I saw Catching Fire in theaters twice. And so I was I was very um, interested to go back. Yeah, these movies are just not that interesting, unfortunately. The first one in particular, you know, has, you know, it's been kind of harped on a lot. All all the steady cam or the shaky cam rather, especially during the games. Um, And the games, I think, you know, are the most kind of important or the most interesting part of this movie, for sure. You know, there's um, some moments of entertainment and it's the action, you know, part of the film. But so much of the lead up is very slow. I don't really find the actors to be particularly very good. Um, Honestly, like it hurts me to say it as a big fan of Jennifer Lawrence as a teenager. um, She is really giving a lot of strange energy in these movies. You know, she's obviously a character who's put, uh, you know, it's kind of wrong place, wrong time. Um, and you know, was just trying to help her sister when she volunteered for the games. So she, you know, there is something there in the character, but she's really not giving like a very engaging performance. Like everyone is taking these movies so seriously And it's just kind of boring, you know, aside from like Stanley Tucci and probably like Elizabeth Banks, everyone is just like so like cold throughout this entire movie. And now, to be fair, they're not really working with good dialogue either. Like, it's really hard because like, you know, the movie is a sci fi kind of futuristic thriller, but it's trying to appeal to modern 21st century moviegoers and so some of the lines is just like, who is this movie really for? You know, like at one point early on, Katniss is like fighting or is like hunting a deer. And then in the background, Liam Hemsworth is like, what are you going to do with the deer that big? And then the deer runs off and she can't shoot it with her arrow. And she goes, damn you, Gail. And it's like, you can't you can't say that without laughing. It's such a bad line. And it's just like you, you can't say that while wearing a leather jacket. Like it just it doesn't work. Um And like, that's a a big problem I have with most of the acting throughout the series is that most of it, because everyone is taking it so seriously, um, as if it's so dramatic and like brooding that it it just becomes like boring, you know, at at certain points. And, you know, the games and particularly in the second one, too, since the second one is they spend way more time, you know, raising the conflict of the between the civilians and the capital and the tension between all of them. So the games do feel like they have a bit more weight to them in the second one. But like the my biggest issue with this whole series is whenever you have a story that has a interesting kind of core concept, right? There's this idea of this future where these games happen and they send up, you know, two young adults to fight for um, for their district to win. Like that's pretty interesting. But as the series goes on, you know, they get away from that fact, and specifically with the last two films, with Mockingjay, you know, part one and two. But Hunger Catching Fire is the turning point. You know, they they toned down the shaky cam, they got creative with the shot composition and the coloring, and they had to go bigger and better because the first one was such a success. 
but most of the game stuff I was actually pretty interested in. Again, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it looks good and it has some good tension. But Catching Fire does two really big cardinal franchise sins that really bugged me. One is that it takes the political and government affairs you know, side of the story and turns that basically into the A plot. And that's where you really start to lose me. It, it was not the main draw of the story. Yes, it's fine having like the first movie is like they win. You know, they they go against the capital. They basically prove that this is bullshit. They beat the system. The game maker, Seneca Crane, played by Wes Bentley, you know, kills himself or is forced to kill himself, you know, whatever. And, you know, they they beat the, they beat the government. Right. And now it's like, OK, now we have to rise up and really take down the government. It's like, I, OK, I guess. But now it's like. That's way less of interesting of a story than what you were trying to do in the first one. And again, not to say that the first one is like amazing, but there was a change in the second one. And I remember a lot of people calling this like one of the best sequels in recent memory. And it just kind of sends these movies on a path and sets up the next two kind of to fail because the end of the other Cardinal sin this movie creates or commits is they make Katniss this deity in a way you know it goes it kind of leans into this prophecy kind of idea and that she was she's the one who the the resistance has always wanted to lead against the capital and um that leads to this cliffhanger that's so frustrating and it's just unnecessary and then speaking of unnecessary you have these last two movies which didn't need to be split into two parts you know i i will admit that the i thought the part one was a lot better than part two Um, but they're both like so unnecessary because all of the information that's necessary to the story in part one, you could like condense into 40 minutes and then you have the second part, you know, that could be like two hours. So if you want to make this, the Mockingjay movie, like two and a half hours or so, you could probably do it and it would be a lot leaner than stretching this out into a four, you know, four and a half hour experience, which is so unbelievably unnecessary. Especially because, like, the main story of Mockingjay Part 1 is that they're just making propaganda movies, and they're it's basically, like, how to make a commercial. And the shaky cam comes back, there's not really any action, and they're really stretching out the tension to fill, you know, dramatic spaces. And it's it just doesn't work. Like, they really fuck themselves by following in the footsteps of Harry Potter and Twilight to do these two, like, part one and two bullshit you know it's I, I don't understand why they did that and again like because of that you're getting so far away from the original concept of the movie that made it interesting like they try their hardest in part two to make it like okay when they're going through you know the city or like the capital and like all of the the game makers have turned on them and now they've turned the capital into one big you know, arena and like a cornucopia kind of thing. And those are the games. And obviously, Phoenix says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 76 Hunger Games before they go in trying to get the audience to be like, see, see, this is still cool. And it's not. They've just gotten so far away from the original thing. And that you, it's really hard to get me to go back. And those in the game section, quote unquote, the game section of the last movie is not interesting. The last movie, oh my God, was so fucking boring. I was like struggling to get through it. Like it was the, it was the only one that I was legitimately like, I kind of just want to turn this off and not watch the rest of it. Cause it was, it felt so not worth it. And I remember thinking it was better than part one when I saw it, but like, holy hell, I would rather watch part one over part two any day, honestly. And again, none of these movies are like masterpieces or really that great. But like this last one was just such a whimper of an ending. 
you know, offing certain characters that are just kind of, you know, lost in these dramatic moments that don't that aren't effective. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on with PETA. And that that's the other thing about these movies is this this movie is dumb name central. All right. People you can hark on, you know, Harry Potter all you want for having bad names. But like there's at least names in that movie that in the in those movies that that kind of ground it. Right. Like, you know, Harry, Ron, Seamus, like Dean, you know, these are, uh, you know, the, these are fairly normal names. Right. All everyone is named is so weird in this movie. Hamish, Katniss, Peta, Cinna, like Effie. Everyone's got a weird fucking name. And it, it's so hard to take that seriously. And it's unfortunate that these were the last you know, films of Philip Seymour Hoffman's career. And I do think he's like pretty good in part two, but still he's not really given a whole lot of freedom to have fun. He kind of just feels like he's there. And it's unfortunate because he's just kind of present in these movies than he is like an active, interesting character. And that's kind of how I feel about a lot of these movies, especially Katniss. Like, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, again, like I said, she's given some very weird energy. She has her moments of like acting well, but I, I think she's kind of miscast in these movies. And she, as a character, is just kind of put on a conveyor belt and is just kind of moved through. And it's unfortunate because she's the emotional crux and she doesn't really make a whole lot of decisions until, um, you know, like the end of each movie. So, yeah, these these movies aren't very good. You know, they have their moments. I have some nostalgia for them, particularly the first two. I would return to the first two again before returning to the last two again. I honestly do not ever plan on watching Mark mocking J part one or two ever again, because like they just lose all interest from that. I had in the first two films. Uh, they just get completely get rid of it in those last two, um, which is just dead on arrival. So I, I kind of liken these movies to like the matrix in a lot of ways, because you know, they have an interesting idea to start expand the world. And you know, in the second one and, then they start to get into kind of the original, the religious somewhat, um, like I said, deity angle that like Matrix Revolution does or even like, you know, the Hobbit movies. Uh, it was, again, three movies of one book that was incredibly unnecessary. But again, it was interesting to go back and look at a time when there were there were franchises that could go up against the superhero movies, you know, and now what movies are trying to do that better than, you know, Top Gun Maverick and now Avatar The Way of Water. So, in closing, I gave The Hunger Games two stars, I gave Catching Fire three stars, I gave Mockingjay Part 1 two stars, and I gave Mockingjay Part 2 one star. Um, not very good, um, but had some enjoyable moments, but overall not a very interesting film series. And then this kind of leads into, you know, Divergent, and this is where like the teen YA kind of franchise goes downhill because this is really kind of riding on the coattails of um, Harry Potter and Twilight. And so this had its moment, but we're not going to go back to stuff like that, stuff like this again in the big screen, unfortunately. So enter Avatar The Way of Water. Obviously, this is a movie that has been in the works for 13 years, um, a sequel that some are excited about, some don't give a shit. Um, because it's been so long and, you know, the first Avatar has kind of garnered a reputation of kind of whatever amongst certain moviegoers. And I, you know, I'm not uh, the biggest fan of it. I think it's I, I think that I had a, a very big af- affinity for it when I was younger. 
and then rewatching it when I was in college. I just didn't like it, and I don't really have any real reason to return to it. It's the most recent rewatch was in 2019, and enough of it has stuck in my mind to know how I feel about it. But I was at least optimistic going in because, you know, I mean, I was interested to see the technology, you know, and see all the water stuff and curious to see where they go with this. You know, it, it is kind of um, a little bit less monumental to know that they're trying to make three more of these and they've already filmed another one. So we'll see what happens. But for now, we have this sequel. I was originally going to go see it in IMAX 3D. I was going to travel up to up to Syracuse, but I couldn't because the day I was going to do that, we had that snowstorm. So I was like, well, I'll see it in, uh, in regular 3D. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have talked about this already, but... There's this movie is filmed, uh, at least a fair amount of it is filmed in a very high frame rate um, at points in thir- at 48 frames a second and some filmed in a regular frame rate of 24 frames a second. And it was the biggest disappointment to me because I was not aware that this was the case going in and I thought I would be able to adjust to it. But for the most part, it was incredibly distracting and made the movie look like a video game. Mainly because, like, I know there's been movies that have, you know, been filmed in a higher frame rate that use real people, and that creates this kind of soap opera look. When you put that in with CGI, mostly CGI blue people characters, it looks like Avatar the video game is being projected onto a big screen. So it didn't really feel like a movie event to me, and I was disappointed in that. I was I was really excited to to go to an event that was cinematic. And there are some, like, you know, there's some engaging parts of the story. The um, the water stuff looks great, but I just couldn't get over the frame rate look of it. And especially because it's so jarring when it jumps back and forth between being in, you know, a faster frame rate to a slower frame rate. It's so incredibly, like, jarring back and forth, and it looks kind of sloppy in that sense. And I've heard people say, like, if you go see it in, like, IMAX 3D... Like you don't notice it. I've heard some people not notice it and others, you know, have. So I don't really know. You know, I, I part of me wants to see it again to, you know, get a, a bit more of like a, a full read on it. Um, you know, other than the technical stuff, you know, I think that a lot of the new characters aren't that interesting, save for one of them. The Sigourney Weaver performance is unbelievably strange. It was just not working for me and was really taking me out of it and made me feel kind of weird. There's a lot of things about this story that are like very lazy, but the world building is cool. And, you know, the experience of seeing it in a theater, you know, is the immersive way to see it, obviously. And I would say the last half, like the last, like the whole third act itself is, is very engaging. There's a lot of good action sequences and, you know, set pieces. And so I, I was never bored. Like I will say that the, the it flies by as a three hour and, you know, 12 minute movie. And in my mind, I, I felt like it went by like pretty dang quickly. I just wish I was more into it. Like I, it was just a disappointing experience. And like I said, if I have the opportunity, maybe I'll try and see it in IMAX 3D and maybe I'll have a different read on it. But that shouldn't be the base level for movies. You know, I, I should be able to get the same basic movie in 2D or 3D or regular or whatever as I do in IMAX. And yes, it's that is an enhanced experience for sure. But it, it should at least be like the same movie. And this doesn't feel like a movie. This feels like a video game. And I was just disappointed by it. So I... I gave it three stars. It's not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I was just disappointed. All right, moving on to another sequel that just recently came out on the 
Um, the streaming mega giant Netflix is Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. This is Ryan Johnson's follow up to the 2019 hit uh, Knives Out that earned him a Best Original Screenplay Academy Award nomination. Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, is back to investigate a mystery on a remote island uh, with a bunch of incredibly wealthy folks isolated from the rest of the world. And he spends the night running around this island trying to solve this mystery and murder as it unfolds. I was a big fan of Knives Out. I I really loved that movie. And, uh, you know, I love a good murder mystery. And that one was really well contained and incredibly engaging and, you know, really rich with the characters. So I was interested to see where this one goes, especially because, you know, this is is very different. You know, the first film was all about a family, a rich family. This one is all about a, uh, a group of friends. Um, but, you know, you, you don't really understand, like, what brings them together until the movie, um, you know, gets going a little bit. Um, I don't say that as a, as a critique. It's just it's just the truth. Um, I had an absolute blast with this movie. I had such a great time. I, it was it was incredibly fun to just, you know, watch beautiful people and beautiful sceneries while basically a white squall happened outside my window. You know, the mystery itself is not as like airtight as the first one. I think that while the first one was way more engaging and you really tried to kind of figure out like who it was like bouncing back and forth between options in your head. This one kind of feels more like a ride where you're like, all right, I know it's going to get to a conclusion in some way, but I wasn't like, oh, it could be this person, it could be this person, it could be this person. I was just like, I'll know by the end. Let's see where it goes. And it was still fun, but it wasn't as engaging in that in that sense. But all of the performers were fantastic and had great chemistry with one another. I really believe that all of them were friends in some way, and they're um, some of them were, you know, they were all idiots in in their own sense and. You know, Ryan Johnson is writing this movie with his beliefs and morals like really shown on his sleeve. And again, that can be kind of off-putting for some people. But it did not bother me, you know, and, and it's really great to see Daniel Craig back as, um, you know, as this character. Um, Janelle Monet is also in this movie and really great um, playing, you know, an interesting, you know, an interesting stone cold kind of character when you meet her. Uh, and then as her character starts to unravel you, uh, she really brings it in terms of the performance and it's a tricky performance again no spoilers but it I think she really pulled it off in terms of a um you know a, a pop star turned actress and we have obviously seen you know Janelle Monet um you know perform well in movies before like Moonlight and Hidden Figures so it's cool to see her in a bit more of a of a genre film um with a bit more like zany characters in it you know there was definitely some moments of the dialogue that felt like kind of cringy because of like it's it's intentionally supposed to be about the the rich and it's taking place during COVID. And so some of it is a bit like too forward. And so some like, there are moments where you're like, Oh, okay. Like, uh. but I, I know it's intentional, but it just like, didn't really land with me. Um, but other than that, I really enjoyed this movie. It was, it was a really fun time. Like I said, I would still prefer the first one over this one, but I still gave this one four stars. I gave it the like, I am very much looking forward to watching it again. Same day, December 23rd, is an interesting double feature. I uh, started a string of Christmas movies with my family. Um, we have our staples, which I'll talk about in a, in a minute here. Um, but I, I wanted to watch a, a brand new one and something a little shorter. Brand new in the sense to me, and this is one that I've heard, you know, so many friends of mine like love. It's a staple of theirs, either their favorite Christmas movie or one that they go back to every single year and have forever. That's The Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, which I... Um, believe it or not, had never seen and was a point of contention between um, myself and many of my friends because it was like, oh, you got to see it. You got to see it. How could you not have seen it? And I just never grew up with it. You know, um, you know, I like the Muppets just fine. I'm not a 
um, you know, crazy Muppet fanatic. I grew up on Sesame Street and have seen, um, you know, several you know, bits from the old Muppet TV show. But this one was never in my rotation. And, you know, I heard a lot about, you know, how great Michael Caine is, Scrooge. But I was really excited to watch this movie. And it's wonderful. It is, is a really lovely movie that, you know, tells the, you know, the titular Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, that story that's so well known and still such a new and engaging way and blending it, you know, with the um, well-known, you know, Muppet humor. And it's fun to see which characters, you know, uh, which Muppets play which characters in the story. And Michael Caine is just like, he is a knockout in this movie. He really works. He really makes, he's kind of the glue that holds everything together because he's, you know, he's portraying it as he's talking to real, as if he's talking to real people, not puppets. And it really you know, lands the legitimacy of the story and, you know, makes it feel um, way more significant than another random Muppet movie or another random adaptation of A Christmas Carol, right? Songs are all really great. You know, I, I there wasn't really one that I, I didn't like. Um, I thought they all were very fitting, particularly the the Healthy Heart or Happy Heart um, song at the end and the opening song, like, the, to introduce Scrooge, to introduce Scrooge, excuse me, is all really great. Um, and I mean, you know, there's, there's parts of it that are a little slow just from knowing the Christmas Carol story. Like it's a story that we all know. And so even though you're hearing it in a a different way, it's still the same beats. So you're just kind of going through it in that sense. You're like, all right, so now they're, now they're in the present. They're going to the party or, Oh, we're going to go, you know, visit, uh, Ebenezer's grave, you know, what is just like, okay. Um, but there's still a lot of life in this movie, and the production design is fantastic. The costumes are all great. Yeah, I had a really great time with this. I'm interested to see if it will become part of my you know, yearly holiday tradition. Um, but for now, I gave it four stars. I gave it the like. It's a really good movie. Now, speaking of yearly holiday staples, the two that are always watched in my family, the first on Christmas Eve and then the second on Christmas Day, are National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and the 2000 Jim Carrey How the Grinch Stole Christmas these are two films that are among the most quoted within my household and ones that we have watched every single year since I was very, very young. I mean, I saw The Grinch when I was like four or five and then Christmas Vacation I saw was when I was like eight or nine, maybe. So these are these are like core texts in my family. Um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is a perfect movie. It is five out of five. It's a five star film. It is a, it is the perfect Christmas movie in my mind. It, you know, tackles every single possible idea there is, you know, to milk humor out of in terms of Christmas, you know, getting the gifts, putting lights on the house, the family coming in, making sure that's the perfect holiday, everything goes wrong. All the jokes are, you know, the jokes are hilarious. Again, infinitely quotable. Um, you know, Randy Quaid as, um, as cousin Eddie, it's just, it all is just phenomenal. It's, it's, it's a movie that I look forward to watching every single year. It never gets old for me. Like all the jokes still land. It's a perfectly paced movie. It's so fun. It's the, definitely the best of the vacation movies. And you know, I think that you know this has be has been a staple not just for me but for a lot of people for so many years. Is just it's a special special movie. And there's not many Christmas movies like modern or otherwise that really live up to it in this way. You know, you have movies like It's a Wonderful Life that are um, you know incredibly well made. But like, you know, that movie is mainly an emotional journey. This movie is is purely for the spirit of the holidays, giving laughs, being with your family. Like you have to watch this movie with a group of people to really relish in the tone that they're 
um, setting up for you. You know, maybe we'll do an episode on it one day, but for now it's just like, it's a perfect Christmas movie. It's a five-star film. You absolutely give it the like. How the Grinch Stole Christmas, on the other hand, this is probably the most quoted movie in my household. We quote, you know, every line of this movie. Um, you know, the Jim Carrey performance is, is really fantastic. It really is, like, actually scared me as a kid. Um, but it's one of my favorite Carrey performances because he just gives himself completely over, you know, to the to the character and to the physicality of it and the voice and just everything. It's so fun to watch. Um, the movie itself is, is really not that good. Like... It's it doesn't look very good. It like the the colors are weird. The design is weird. Obviously, it's Dr. Seuss um, and the there's a lot of Dutch angles, which are very annoying and frustrating. There's some storylines and like character stuff. It's just like, why are we doing this? Why like, do we need Christine Baranski being like absolutely thirsty for the Grinch? Like, I, I don't know. And again, it's kind of like the like unnecessary over sexualization of children's, you know, famous media but i digress you know i i'm i'm never gonna say we shouldn't watch this you know it is a staple for a reason you know the jokes still work it's it has a special place you know in, in my family so I, I say this is like a three-star movie but i gotta give it the like and is um it means a lot to all of us and it's again it makes the holidays for us so but both those movies you know we watch christmas vacation every year on christmas eve we watch the grinch every year on christmas day and that's the way it's going to be for a very long time. Staying on the holiday train, I wanted to let you guys know about a couple movie-related gifts I received uh, for Christmas. One of which was this board game called Clipology. It's essentially like a bit more updated, modern scene it with a few more variety of games. So like there's the classic like I play where you watch a clip and then answer a question or there's a we play where everyone watches a clip or plays a game and first one to answer wins and you try and you know just make your way around the the board which is like a film reel all the way to the center where uh, you have to answer a series of final questions in order to in order to win it was really fun um, my mom my brother and my brother's girlfriend and I all played and it was a good time uh, they had a wide variety of questions um, I was very good at it um, for for obvious reasons, um, but it was honestly it was a good, um, fun, pretty easy moving game. Uh, I will say my least favorite part about it, though, is that you have to go on to like their website and scan a QR code in order to start playing. And I was trying to then cast that from my phone to my TV and it was lagging really hard, like it wasn't really working like either clips would start late or they wouldn't show us the question and we would watch like part of the clip. We wouldn't really know how to answer or we wouldn't even see the question. Um, and also when you cast it, you they don't cast the question to the TV. You have the, the question on your phone and then the clip on the screen, which is not the most convenient way of doing things, uh, as you can imagine. So that was a little frustrating. So I'll probably just next time we play it, I'll probably just I'll probably just play it on like my computer or something so there's at least a bigger screen. But it was still a great time um, and I got some Criterion Blu-rays as well. I got Citizen Kane, very excited to rewatch that. Lost Highway, you remember that I watched that for a diary entry earlier this year and I watched it on YouTube in terrible quality with Hungarian subtitles. So I'm excited to watch it in actual good quality. And uh, the final film that I'm going to be talking about uh, blowout. I got the criterion for that. Um, I watched this movie 
earlier this year and just fell head over heels in love with it. It just felt like the movie that I was looking for to really bring my confidence up to uh, feel like I was ready to make a feature film uh, because it's I like understood every decision and loved every directing choice that De Palma makes and the acting's really fantastic. Um, it's just a really fantastic thriller. It's like a political conspiracy thriller where John Travolta plays a stuntman or not a stuntman, excuse me, a sound effects guy who is recording sounds for a movie that he's working on. And then, um, a, a car, a tire blows out and he becomes entangled in this political conspiracy, him and Nancy Allen. It's a really terrific movie. And I'm really excited that I got the Blu-ray because, uh, I was able to show it to my family. So my mom, my brother and I, we watched it. This was on the 29th and we had a really great time. It was so, it was even better the second time watching it, you know, cause I understood the story a lot better. It's a confusing story. There's a lot of moving parts to it. Um, so it kind of demands several watches to pick everything up. It's incredibly dark. It's, uh, it's a downer movie, but that's kind of what I love about it. And they really liked it. My brother thought it was good and my mom also enjoyed it. So it was it was really fun to have that as, uh, you know, our, our family movie night to kind of uh, close out the year with. Um, so a Blowout is, I mean, it's a five-star movie. It is absolutely a like. And the, the Criterion, like, restoration was absolutely incredible. It looks so beautiful. It was definitely, like, the perfect scenario to watch that movie in. I watched it the first time on Amazon Prime so that, you know, uh, it, it looked fine. But, it, like, this was way better, a definite step up. I mean... I know not a sponsor, obviously, but, you know, the Criterion Blu-rays are just have all been fantastic that I've watched. And uh, I'm so glad that I own this and I can't wait to watch it again. So that's it for the diary entry. Those are all the movies that I watched through the end of the year. Um, I, there were some new ones that I tried to get to, but the holidays are just too busy. Um, so they're going to have to wait till the next diary entry. I'm going to be taking the entire month of January off. I need some time to relax and kind of work on some other standalone episodes and finish the new series that we've been working on. Um, that will be um, probably starting in February sometime, not 100% sure, but I will promote um, when the new series starts. It's going to be, frankly, I love movies in the real world. Myself and Lexi Cutmore have eight wonderful episodes all about movies based on a true story, and I can't wait to share those with you. We've been working really hard on it, and it's just wonderful to be able to podcast with Lexi. Uh, she's the best, and uh, I know you guys are going to really enjoy it. As always, if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. I want to thank you guys so much again for sticking with me and listening to Frankly I Love Movies throughout the year of 2022. It's been a rough year for sure, but I hope you guys have uh, watched some great titles that have really stuck with you. The next uh, episode that I'll have out is a diary entry um, for the entire month of January. I'll release that at the first week of February. I'm going to be covering every movie that I watched in January. Also, maybe some special stuff. Haven't really figured it out yet. I'm, I might be doing like a top five favorites of the year or um, talk about some movies that I uh, you know watched and discovered in 2022. Not 100% sure yet, but it's going to be like some extra stuff. It's going to be a long diary entry. I do not know what my top 10 of the year, top 10 or top 5 of the year are because there are so many movies that I really want to see that I just haven't been able to see it. Like, I'm going to see Babylon very soon, and I know there's just going to be more stuff released in January that's going to be closer to me. Because of living in a small town, 
you have limitations. So I'm just trying to make it all work. Um, so thank you guys for your patience. I also want to give a huge thank you to everyone who worked on Frankly, I Love Movies this year. Uh, Rihanna Hansen did some fantastic artwork for our standalone episodes and the off-the-shelf series that we did earlier this year. And Kanan Harris, who did all of the new music that you hear featured on uh, every episode from this year. So thank you both very, very much. And I will see you all in the year 2023. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Movies.